Oh Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. This morning we came in and it was dark, yet we know when we leave, the sun will have risen on a new day, and again the sun will set. And it just reminds us of your faithfulness, God. Thank you for your many graces to us, your many mercies to us, that your mercies are new every morning, that you are a God who is mighty to save, save those who are in rebellion against you, who are God-haters, who um, are, are dead in their sins. But because of your great love for us, Lord, you saved us. And now, Lord, we live each day fully dependent upon you for every breath that we breathe, every beat of our heart. Lord, I pray today that um, we would come to you under your word, that we would come lowly, we would come humbly, we would come contrite in spirit. And Lord, that each of us might tremble at your word. For the words that we share this morning are your very words to us. May you encourage us in places that we could be encouraged and that we might praise your name for the grace you've given. And for those places that still need change, Lord, let us rejoice in the cross for the grace that you have given. Would you humble us? Would you um, be near to us? It is our good to be near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take out your notebook, as you do every other Saturday morning, and we're going to look at our disciplines. And just reminding us of our purpose to equip and encourage the Women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they lived out gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And we're going to move into discipline one, the heart. She prayerfully, um, I'm sorry, the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. I often think about Ezra, Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and laws. I, I like this example because Ezra set his heart. He resolved or determined to study the Word of God. And we must do this setting of our hearts as well. We're continually reminded in the Gospel of who we once were. We were wicked in opposition to God, lost, without hope. We were rebellious. But God gave the righteous one to die for our sins, and he was raised to life again, overcoming sin and death. The Gospel is a gift from God not only for salvation, but to enable us to deal with the ongoing activity of sin in our lives. It's the enabling grace that God has given. So we must be about shepherding, about counseling, about leading and guiding our hearts to the word of God, to meet with him there, that he might do his mighty work in our hearts. And that takes discipline and that takes resolve. As we grow in our love for God, we're going to long for this time more and more. But have you noticed the more you feed your heart God's word, the more you desire it? And if you neglect this time, it's possible to neglect it even more still. So we pray, and we pray for the Lord's help. It's a discipline that will be a lifetime, that will last a lifetime for us. And then the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Like Ezra, we want to practice those things which the word calls us to. As women, we want to, the law of the God to always be on our hearts and on our lips. And as we feed upon his word, we're able to feed those God, 
in our home and those that God brings to, um, to us. Our home is the first place where the gospel ought to be displayed. It's our practice ground, and we show here um, what the gospel has accomplished in us first and foremost, right? And ministry is number three, the discipline number three, with, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Again, first Ezra set his heart to study the scriptures, then to practice it, and here in Discipline 3, ministry, Ezra taught the scriptures. Teaching is not merely standing at the pulpit, to be sure. The gospel and its, all its implications ought to always be on our lips to encourage as we have been in our homes with those in the body and others that God will bring throughout our paths, we want to be pointing one another to the cross, to Jesus Christ. And this ministry happens over lunch, maybe when you leave here today and you go to get breakfast, or over text or mom's group during the week. It comes in many different, in different ways. It might be in small group during the week. Every aspect of our life is ministry. So we want to be equipped in this work of the Lord's reconciliation. I don't know if you, you have Scott's uh, or the sample prayer, right? You got that at the beginning of the year. If you haven't looked at that, maybe bring that out again. It's just a great way to prepare your heart to worshipfully go to God's word and just remind us of why we have his word open before us. And uh, it's just a great. So we're going to take out our outline. And today we're going to talk specifically what God says about the danger of a prideful heart. And we are going to talk about the hope of the gospel. And we're going to talk a lot about sin this morning. It's not very, very, very popular to talk about these days. Without talking about our sin, though, how can the hope of the gospel be good news? God's word talks about it and what he has done for us and what he wants for us to do. So we must talk about our sin. God hates sin, and because we love God, we want to look at this heart of pride. For the believer, as you know, we are in a mixed condition. Christ paid the penalty for sin so that the power of sin was broken, but the presence of sin remains in our hearts. Today we're going to talk about fighting the sin of pride, progressive sanctification. God chooses to use sinful people to fulfill his purposes. That's pretty amazing. And this morning, I'm really, really thankful for that, right? There are many other women, as I look out, who are very humble women, who I wish were standing up here. But this is what the Lord has for me today and has for you today. I've had the um, opportunity to examine my own heart as I prepared And again, recognize areas of pride. And it's easy for me to wallow in my failures, in my own insufficiencies. But I've had to remind myself, and I've preached the gospel to myself. I'm not condemned because I am a believer in Christ, because I am a child to him, because I belong to him. So we walk in newness of life. And I hope that's true for you. So as I pray, I ask... um, I pray and ask the Lord to help me fight greater in obedience by his grace. And so I pray that for you. We're going to press on together through the lesson this morning. There might be, probably most likely, be an awareness of 
pride in your heart today because the truth is we all have a residue of pride in our hearts. It's at the root of all of our sin. But there is hope and we don't lose heart. He will finish the work he has begun in us. Isn't that an encouraging promise? And you know, it brings glory to the Lord as we fight our sin. He surely could have saved us and made us complete, made us sinless at that point. But as we battle sin, it brings glory to him. And as Jamie said, I think she prayed this morning like, I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where the bread is, pointing you to Christ. So I want to start you by asking, do you see yourself as a prideful person? When you hear the word pride or arrogant, we might be tempted to think of someone else. Pride is a lot easier to identify in others, isn't it? As seriously dangerous as pride is, it's equally hard to spot in ourselves. But we have the Holy Spirit and we have one another. We have the Word of God. Maybe we're just unwilling to address pride. Maybe we see it, but we don't want to address it. (coughs) Remember, our hearts are prone to deceive and prone to being deceived. Hopefully, by God's grace, we will all continue to grow in being able to identify these areas of pride, see pride as God sees it, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Savior, and become more conformed to the image of our great God. So pride is something we all struggle with, but we also want to guard against that. Yeah, I struggle with pride, but so does everybody else. We can begin to elevate our own sin becoming proud that we see our sin, but not battling to eradicate it from our lives. We want to learn to see it as God sees it, as we look where? Into his word. And we want to look at the great cost that was paid for our sins. And this should cause us to be humbled, that our hearts would be broken and contrite over our sin. Because we want to see that our sin is ultimately against our great God. And to be humbled by that fact that I'm no longer a slave to pride. And now I have his power to obey him. I didn't want to ever obey before I knew the Lord or have the power to obey. But he's made us new, right? So that we rejoice. So in order to help to see and understand how pride displays itself and to help identify pride in our own hearts, just in this next couple of minutes, show the, ask the Lord to show you your sin. It's a gift from him. It's a gift that he reveals it to us. We want to humble our hearts. And so I'm going to start with some questions. We do this every year. You've, if you've been at Wellspring at all, you've heard these questions. And every year, they just, just deeper and deeper. It's the 41 Evidences of Pride by Nancy Lee DeMoss, who is no longer DeMoss. Wilgamuth or something like that. She's married. But just listen as I read from the list. I won't read every one. But let's be honest with ourselves as we hear these. Are you quick to find fault with others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your husband or others in positions of leadership? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? 
Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way, the best way? Do you have a sensitive spirit? Are you easily offended? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense, trying to leave a better impression of yourself than is really true? Do you have a hard time admitting when you are wrong? Or do you have a hard time confessing your sin to God or to others? Are you a perfectionist? Do you get impatient with those who are not? Do you tend to be controlling of circumstances, of others? Does your husband or anyone else feel like they can never measure up to your expectations? Do you often complain about the weather, about your health, your circumstances, your comforts? Are you more concerned about your problems, your needs, or your burdens than another's? Do you neglect to express gratitude for the little things to God and to others? Do you neglect prayer and intake of the word? Is it hard for you to let others know when you need help? Practical help or spiritual help? Are you sitting here thinking how many of these questions apply to someone else? (laughs) These are hard questions, aren't they? Really hard questions. I think I could answer yes to some degree for all of those above. So do you see maybe how sin can show itself in our hearts? One author said pride is self-obsession. Pride is preoccupation with ourselves. Therefore, it is a lie about reality. It says I'm worth thinking about all the time. It's an orientation that wrongly assumes that everything resolves around us. Pride must die. It's hard to spot, and it's even harder to kill. It's a slippery sin. J. Edwards said, Pride is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. It's a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether cherished in the mind or displayed in the conduct. Let's look at God's view of pride in the heart. We're going to start by looking at, on your outline, the danger to which pride exposes the heart. And we're going to begin our study today turning to Deuteronomy 17. It's all from 14 to 20, verse 14 through 20, but we're going to start in uh, verse 18. Moses is giving instruction to Israel regarding a king that they will have one day. So starting in verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words in this law and these statutes so that his heart may not be lifted above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, 
so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So the king is to write a copy of the law himself in the presence of the Levitical priests to make sure he gets it right. It is to always be in his presence. He's to read it all the days of his life so that he will learn to uh, fear the Lord through obedience. He's to keep God's word with him and read it in order to prevent him from lifting up his heart against others in arrogance and in pride, to prevent the king from thinking that he was better than the rest. He needs God's word close to his heart so that he doesn't exempt himself from the standard that everyone else has to live by. He has to live by that same standard. The king of Israel was to be on the same level ground as everybody else. And it was God's law, God's word, God's revelation of himself that would do that leveling. The great leveler for all of us is the word of God. So as we go, we're going to have some how about me questions to search our own hearts, to help us and not think that some, I wish somebody else was here. How about me? Do I realize that I will, I will exalt myself without a steady diet of God's word? Do I realize that I will start thinking that somebody else needs God's word more than I do and exempt myself? You and I both know that we need to be continually exposed to God's word at the heart level. Discipline one. That's why we continue to talk about it to prevent us from lifting our hearts above others in pride. We know it's there in our hearts. We prevent us from thinking that we are somehow better or above those around us. We can quickly point figures at others who maybe are not as good as we are or who have been caught in a great sin. We have a need, and it is a vital need to be continually worshipfully, prayerfully exposed to the word at a heart level. To prevent us from elevating ourselves above others in pride and to seek a humble attitude through time with him and to have a but for the grace of God, there go I attitude. Rather than feeling superior to those who practice sin, but to feel deeply grateful that God in his grace has kept me from or rescued me from great sin. So back to our outlines, turning to Proverbs 16.5. Solomon says about pride to his son. 16.5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination. Or the Holman Christian Standard Bible says detestable. God hates it. Is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. That is God's uh, response to pride, that it must be punished, right? And it was the Son of God. He was punished for our sin. Every sin. The sin of pride and arrogance at the cross. God didn't change the way he felt about sin, but he gave his son. And Christ willingly became my sin. He willingly became your sin.
And as Jamie read from uh, the Gospel Primer, Cultivating Humility, it reminds us that I, I must teach that truth. I must preach that truth for the gospel in my, to my heart and see my sin clearly and in light of the price that was paid and what God accomplished on my behalf. How about me? Do I preach gospel realities to my heart and let them turn me away from arrogance to which Christ suffered and died? Hosea 13, if you want to turn there, Hosea 13. Hosea is a prophet, and there's a clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel. This is at the time of Exodus and wilderness wanderings, and God is looking back. In verse 4, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. So do you see, you'll see that he shifts from talking to them, and he shifts talking about them. In verse 6, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So we see here how dangerous a prideful heart is. A prideful heart can be tempted to forget God. So the root of forgetting God is pride. Their heart became proud. They forgot him. There's a danger when we are satisfied and comfortable. Having God's provision, we're blessed, and that's a time that our hearts can be tempted to forget God. Our hearts are deceitful. None of us are exempt from that temptation. It's never a day that goes by that we do not have to be aware, that we have to be watching for this. It's easy, to remember to, uh, it's easy to remember God when things are good, when things um, are going the way that I'd like them to be going. But it's easy to remember to cry out to God when things are hard, when relationships are hard, when finances are hard, when you have health problems. Those trials help us to see our need for God, but we always need God. So what can we do to be just as intentional about seeking the Lord when we're satisfied and comfortable? Again, it's the purpose that you all meet together at Wellspring to remind one another over and over again that we must bring our hearts to meet with the God of the Word, to acknowledge our constant, ongoing need for Him. We are dependent upon Him. And God does that best through His Word. In Hosea, in Deuteronomy 6, we saw one way one way that pride might show in our lives when things are going okay we're prone to forget god how else might we forget him when we find ourselves using the excuse of busyness for not meeting with god in his word or for not praying we might not see that as pride because that's what's tricky about rooting out pride is it has many different faces there are seasons of challenges and obstacles to be sure for all of us. We live busy, full lives. Busyness may not be sinful. It might just be the season that you're in. But if you are using busyness as an excuse for not meeting with God in his word, for not praying or not acknowledging our dependence on him, when we don't make our relationship with him a priority or time with him, 
think, you know what we're really saying to the Lord is, God, I know better than you today what it is that my heart needs. That is pride. I know today better what my heart needs. Because we don't always see the root and faces of, of pride and how there's depths and layers to it. It's just helpful to identify the real reason and the condition of our hearts and begin to root that out. That's why it's a battle. It's hard. When we consistently neglect to prioritize time with him in his word and time with prayer, do you see how this can lead to forgetting God? One day leads to two days, and then maybe a week, and then more. I know better than God what my heart needs. How about me? Do I see how dangerous a prideful heart is because it leads to divine forgetfulness? When I'm tempted to not meet with him because, you know, things are going okay. I'm blessed and, well, I'm busy. And I begin to make choices without a concern for my heart. I have to remind my own heart what it needs most. And one another, you need to remind me and I need to remind you. It is vitally necessary for my heart to meet with him and to draw near to him more than anything else I do. More than anything else I do. Can you imagine leaving the house if you're a makeup wearer without makeup? And yet how quickly do we go out having not met with him? As we look at the different faces of pride, it's to help us to get a better understanding of how pride might be at the root. And that's going to help us to understand how to battle it better. Let's move to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 26. I think it's on your outline, but we're going to jump through this um, chapter. We're going to look at King Uzziah. In verse 1, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. Verse 4, He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. King Uzziah did right in the sight of the Lord. He continued to seek God, and as long as he did, God prospered him. Verse 6 through 15 describe all kinds of victories and achievements, and it tells us why in verse 7. God helped him. And then verse 15, hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped. By God, God helped him until he was strong. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud. It's the same danger that we saw in Deuteronomy and in Hosea. He was successful and he was uh, strong. He took credit for his success. Success is so dangerous to our hearts if we're not careful to be guarding against it. It might be the very thing that we pursue, this success, and we can let that compete with the affections of God. So we see here the danger in verse 16. When we become strong, or when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Well, how is entering the temple to burn incense a corrupt act, you might say? How is that being unfaithful to the Lord? 
In verse 17, then Azariah the priest entered after him and with many, with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord your God. Uzziah was unfaithful to God because he had overstepped the boundary of authority that God had given him. The Lord had marvelously helped him. He granted him success and victories, but service in the temple was reserved for priests, the descendants of Aaron. Even though he was king, it wasn't for him to take. Burning incense wasn't a bad thing, but Uzziah wasn't qualified to do it. It wasn't his role. Do you see where I'm going? How about you and how about me? Are we ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given to us? Ever tempted to work around the roles that God has given you? In marriage, with your parents, with your boss? Now maybe Uzziah thought he was entitled. After all, he was the king. But he was not entitled. It was not his role. Do I ever do that? Am I ever tempted to grasp authority which hasn't been given or feel a sense of entitlement? It's so tempting in our world to have an attitude of entitlement, isn't it? Our culture screams entitlement. And if our hearts are not in full contact with the word, we can begin to believe this lie. And it happens very easily. Like I'm entitled to something from me. I have a right to me time. I'm entitled to respect especially for my children. I'm entitled to appreciation or comfort for sure. We deserve a break today. I deserve time alone. I desire fulfillment or happiness, desire health, retirement. The list goes on. But what do we know? What do we really deserve? We deserve hell, right? Eternity separated from God. So, I must go back thinking about my identity in Christ. I must be thinking about the gospel and repent of my prideful attitude of entitlement. When we think what we want is more important than what God has for us, that's pride. And so that your desire may not be a bad desire, may be a very godly desire, but when I demand what I desire and I sin to get it, thinking I'm entitled, I better watch out. I need to be aware of what my heart is saying and what it's doing. How I react when I'm not treated the way that I think I should be treated. Or maybe I don't get what I think I'm entitled to. It's very telling how my heart responds. Maybe the kids are not responding or your husband isn't living up to what you desire. Maybe somebody's rude to you or you get cut off on the freeway. I don't get the tension I deserve. It's good practice to pay attention to this heart. See its reactions and its responses. That helps us to root out the sin of pride. Now we go on with the sense of entitlement. Do you see how there's layers to this? A sense of entitlement can take on many different forms. Another form might be laziness. 
because I think I'm entitled to my time. What may, what may, I'm sorry, what might laziness look like in our lives? It might look like overindulgence in sleep or entertainment. Maybe it's TV or movies or games. Maybe it's computer time, reading blogs, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. <laughs> Not that any of those things are bad. Do you hear me? None of those are bad in themselves. In fact, they can be very helpful. But laziness really is anything that I put ahead of my responsibilities. It's selfish gain. Anytime we put what we want or think that we're entitled to ahead of what God has given us to do, like spending time with him in his word, being a helpmate to your husband, caring for your home or family or roommates, serving the body of Christ, serving one another, discipline or training your children or reaching out to the lost. Anytime we're putting ourselves first, is self-exaltation and self-promotion, which is what the world encourages us to do. But it's pride. Pride in the heart can lead to a sense of entitlement, which may lead to overstepping authority or laziness or self-exaltation. And sin has partners. You know this. There's connections. One sin always travels with at least one more sin, often many sins. So it's helpful to train ourselves to identify these things, asking ourselves just the opposite of pride. It's humbling. It's humbling when your friend comes to you with a sin. It's humbling when your husband reveals something or your kids. It's humbling when the Holy Spirit shows you. To humble ourselves by asking others to help see. If you're having difficulty, ask someone to help you to see. It's very humbling. We're going to look at this in the New Testament in James 3, 13. In chapter 2, James has been dealing with those in the body who were drawing party lines and showing preferential treatment, especially for the rich. They dishonored the poor. He gives them instructions and warnings. And then in chapter 3, verse 13... Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy, <coughs> For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. <coughs> this positions us to be arrogant, to be prideful. And we want to seek the Lord for wisdom and guard our hearts at all cost. Again, this passage in James helps us to see how one sin easily leads to another kind of sin. Thank you so much. The good news is that when we fight sin strategically, by his grace, it might help in defeating other sins that have traveled along with it. It's like a chain reaction, like dominoes. So when we see jealousy or selfish ambition, what's the root of that? As all sin, arrogance and pride. So far, we've seen a lot of faces of pride 
a few, forgetting God, a sense of entitlement, overstepping our boundaries, laziness, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. And if we go to the root, we must see and repent of pride. We're going to be actually doing battle against others, other sins. We need to train ourselves and even ask for help to make these connections, to see our hearts. Let's look for some other faces of pride. Do we need more? We're going to go back to 2 Chronicles 32. God has a lot to say about pride. Verse 24, in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. The NIV here says he did not respond to the kindness shown to him because his heart was proud. So another face of pride is that he did not respond to the kindness God showed him. Maybe he wasn't thankful. So how might we fail to respond to God's kindness? In Romans 2.4, it says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Do you hate admitting your sin? Are you quick to repent, to keep short accounts when you've sinned? To seek forgiveness when you've sinned against someone else or your sin has affected someone in some way? Or do you just ignore it? thinking everybody should just forget it. It wasn't that big of a deal. Let's just move on. Or maybe we want to avoid uncomfortable situations. That's not repentance. That's a failure to respond to God's kindness and evidence of a prideful heart. God's kindness leads us to repentance. True repentance is displayed in 2 Corinthians 7, if you want to read that later. Another way may not respond to God's kindness is complaining or discontentment. This is a failure to respond to God's kindness, right? A failure to recognize God's kindness to us in all circumstances. Not just the ones that we are okay with, but all of his circumstances. The complaining attitude is so easy for me to fall into. Maybe we complain about how hard we work or how tired we are. Unbelieving family members, about our appearance, about difficulties with people we work with or live with. Financial problems, maybe we complain about the weather. Maybe self-pity, because we just think our lives should be different. That somehow life just isn't the way I would like it to be. Complaining in any form reflects a discontented heart. Because on a heart level, what we really think we deserve something better than what God has given us. Something different than what we have right now. And when we don't really believe that, whatever the circumstance, believing and believing that is a failure to respond to God's kindness. That what I have is God's good for me. It's his best for me. Whatever the situation, all circumstances. And if he believed that I needed something different, he would be the first to give it to me. There's a book on the book table, The Greener Grass Conspiracy. Has anybody read that? 
It's really helpful to your heart. Is that something? It's not anymore? Okay, it's on Amazon. No. Really? Oh, so if you have one, you can maybe share. Really? Wow. Okay. That's sad. So 2 Chronicles 32 says that evidence of, my, of pride in my heart is not responding to God's kindness. And look at the consequences of that pride at the end of 25. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem, and on Judah and Jerusalem. You see, others might experience the consequences for my sin and for your sin. Do you realize the impact our pride and sin will have on others? Consequences run deep and wide many, many times. But look at verse 26. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. Who humbled it? Hezekiah did. Both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. And isn't that so encouraging? That God was willing to turn back his wrath in the face of repentance. And the hope of believers who live after the cross is that Christ bore God's righteous wrath against our sin. He gives us a new heart so that we can repent of pride, that we can humble our own hearts because we have this new ability in Christ. How might I fail to respond to God's kindness? Do I recognize the impact of my pride on others? How might others experience consequences for my sin? We've seen many faces of pride tempting us to forget God, often through success and blessings, not staying within our authority, having a sense of entitlement, laziness, not responding to God's kindness, not repenting of sin, complaining, being discontent, bitter jealousy, having selfish ambition. The list is endless. So when my heart is exposed, what should I do? Well, we need to deal with that pride when it's exposed by God's grace in the gospel. These are the things we must bring to the cross. Believer, we all know that it's not that sin isn't in my heart. It's God's kindness, again, that he reveals it to us. Ask God, please show me where pride exists. Show me where I'm being arrogant. And God will give us eyes to see. He's faithful to do that. We're going to confess and repent and seek forgiveness from those who have sinned against us. I'm sorry, who we have sinned against in our pride. These are the things which Christ has died for. We need to ask him because it's easy for us to see pride in others but not in ourselves. We must ask him to reveal it to us. That's the effect of sin in us. It blinds us to our own sinfulness. What we do when we see others being arrogant, we certainly should see it as an opportunity to ask the Lord, God, make me nearsighted to see my sin before I see others. Help me to see this big honking log in my own eye so that I'm ready to help my sister with her speck. So we humble ourselves as Hezekiah did, and we repent of pride. 
So let's take a look at what God's word says about humility, which is the opposite of pride. Genuine humility is rooted in God's holiness and my sinfulness. We're going to look at 1 Peter 5, 5-7. What is humility? Let me just read a little bit before we get to 1 Peter. William Law said, Humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. And A.W. Tozer said, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. In himself, nothing. In Christ, everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. He's not concerned with others' opinions. He's concerned only with God's view of him. Not great. First Peter 5. <clears throat> you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you see that he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another? Humility is something that has to be lived out in our relationships with one another. Our hearts are exposed, and we are in a better position to see where we need to humble ourselves. You know, like when we're criticized, for example, or rebuked, or admonished, or exhorted, it's so easy to feel hurt or misunderstood and be defensive. But recognize that as pride. As if feeling good about myself is more important than seeing areas where I need to grow. Ouch. This passage continues in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And here he shows us how to humble ourselves in verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Okay, wait a minute. He calls us to humble ourselves by accepting the care he has for us. So it's actually pride to reject his care of us. C.J. Mahaney says about this verse in humility in his book, Humility. Ready? Where there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root of it. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient, not dependent. I'm acting, I'm acting independent of God. I'm worried that God is going to get it wrong. Wow, it's a form of forgetting God again. So the solution to humble ourselves is where? Under the mighty hand of God. So when we need to humble ourselves before others, when we need to confess sin, or when we're criticized or rebuked, we can be look beyond that person to the mighty God who cares for us, who loves us. He is the one we are humbling ourselves to. He is the one who is at work for our good and for his glory through this circumstance. Humility is having an accurate view of ourselves and our Savior and seeing others as an instrument 
that God is using to purify us. Do you see others that way? What a gift. The heart of humility is remembering the gospel and fleeing to Christ, admitting how prideful we really are, and thanking God and praising him for what he has done for us, what he's done for us at the cross, that he poured out his wrath against my pride on Christ. He set us free. We are no longer slaves to pride. And that should make repentance a great joy. Remembering that Jesus is our only hope. And he is a more than sufficient, abundant hope for cultivating a heart of humility. And that being near to him, being right with him, is better than anything our prideful heart thinks that it wants or that it will ever offer. Let's turn to Colossians 3, 12. And this is great news. Not, with, um, not only will a humble heart draw us near to our Savior, but it's going to draw us near to one another. You see that in your relationships? Colossians 3, 12 through 14. So watch out how Paul starts out with who we are, our gospel identity. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. This is who we are in Christ. Now, because of that, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whatever, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The command to be humble is grounded in our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And if we go to wage war with pride and cultivate humility, we must feed our hearts with a steady word of the gospel. Motivation and purpose is rooted in this amazing fact. Humility draws upon, uh, draws the uh, gaze of our Savior. Isaiah 66, 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite of heart and trembles at my word. Humility grows out of a heart that cherishes Christ, who is our greatest treasure and the truths and realities of our identity and what he accomplished at the cross. I must continue to remind myself again who I once was, what Christ has done on my behalf, and who Christ now has made me, and what he's continuing to do in my life. He's perfecting, he's finishing the work he's begun. And the second thing we don't want to miss is that humility serves the greater purpose. It's essential for building unity and love between believers. And that displays what he has done in us through the gospel, right? The work of the gospel. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. That's not our own doing. We're his slaves, and he is a kind master. He has entrusted us with the greatest treasure. And that's the gospel, the treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross. So that we can walk in newness of life, those gospel realities. 
We can walk in humility. We can. And we can live with one another in such a way that the world looks and says, how do they do that? Look how they are caring for one another. That's just not normal. How do they even do that? I could never do that, apart from Christ. They are serving one another, and they are joyful. That kind of living adorns the gospel. It draws others, puts Christ on display. It declares the power of the gospel to make us what we could never be apart from Christ. And finally, we're going to turn to Philippians 2. Starting in verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what we're called to be, not driven to please ourselves, but pursuing love and unity with the body of Christ. Pursuing love. It's similar to Colossians 3. There is an equally, uh, I'm sorry, there is an appeal to unity and love. And what does that require? Verse 3. This is very familiar to us, but let's listen carefully. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ. Listen to what he says about his Savior. It's a familiar passage, right? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Aren't we tempted to grasp after, to take hold of what we want? One of the first times we visited Grace Bible, way back when uh, Scott was teaching a sermon on this very passage, and he used the word to describe us as self-graspers. That really made a big impact on my heart. We are self-graspers. But Jesus did not grasp. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He is our example, and we fight against pride, and we fight for this humility in our own hearts. Jesus was a slave. He took on the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, willingly. And that's how we received our enabling grace. The grace to turn from pride and its many ugly faces to humility and to love. Because Jesus gave himself on the cross to bear away the penalty for our selfish ambition, our sin, to break the power of sin over us, and to give us new love, I'm sorry, new life in a love relationship with himself and his people, with one another. That is the power of the gospel. So to battle pride, we need to be always on the lookout for its many faces. And the list is endless. We talk about battling sin, fighting sin in our lives. Well, what might that look like? Well, recognizing how my heart responds to circumstances and to people and to seeing sin... It might be praying before I even get out of bed, being alert before my feet hit the floor, praying, Lord, I know my heart is selfish. 
I know my eye is often on my own comforts, my own desires. I am a self-grasper. Maybe I'm prone to anger. Lord, I confess that in those moments, Lord, of my sin, my love for myself is far greater than my love for you. I've trampled on your gift of salvation, your gift of grace when I choose my sin, when I choose to be disobedient. Oh, Lord, help me today to see and to turn from the temptation to sin against others and ultimately against you. I am dependent on you for all things. Humility is fundamentally a form of self-forgetfulness as opposed to pride's self-fixation. When you think about yourselves less, you are free to think about Christ more. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The comfortable moments when I pat myself on the back for how well I'm doing are the moments that should alarm me the most. I need to reach for the glasses of Christ-like humility, remembering that nothing good dwells in my flesh, and search my heart for secret pride and its symptoms. We see the cross rightly through the miracle of conversion. And seeing the cross rightly helps me to battle sin. Seeing the cross rightly means that we see ourselves rightly. Pride is defeated decisively at conversion, progressively in sanctification, and totally at glorification, where we experience everlasting worship of our Lord. Amen. What time am I supposed to finish? Early. Am I? Okay. Perfect. Oh, okay. Can I, I was, I just want to end it with um, reading. Have you done this lately? Um, with the gospel. So if you want to just listen. Um, My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to him and to his goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all of the universe. And he created me with the intention that I might glorify him by finding my soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him in all my ways. Yet I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to him and humbly submitting to his rule over my life, I have rebelled against him and have actually sought to exalt myself over him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I have broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I have shown myself to be a fool and because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to an everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I am bound by the guilt of my sins, and also bound by the power of sin and slave to various lusts and pleasures. 
Apart from Christ, I am also utterly deserving and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. However, what I could not do, God did. And in doing it, he did it all. Sending his own son into the world to die on the cross for my sin, thereby showing me unfathomable love. God loved me so much that he was willing to suffer the loss of his son. And even more amazingly, he was willing to allow his son to suffer the loss of him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to lay down his life for me. No one can ever love me more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead, thereby announcing that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my lifetime. God then exalted Christ to his own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all to call on him by faith. Now when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted me a great salvation. He forgave me of all my sins, past, present, and future. He made me his child, adopting me into his family. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, and who tenderly communicates to my spirit that I'm a child of God and an heir of eternal glory of heaven. In saving me, God also freed me from slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin again, for sin's mastery over me has been broken. In saving me, God also justified me. And being justified through Christ, I have a peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced the righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by, Christ, by Jesus, who bore it upon himself while on the cross. Consequently, God now only has love, compassion, and deepest affection for me, and this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me through trials. Because I'm a justified one, he subjugates every trial and forces it to do good unto me. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status as described above. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. And he longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. In his heart, he already has forgiven me. And when I come to him to confess my sins to him, he runs to me as if it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of confession out of my mouth. God does see my sins, and he is grieved by my sins. His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I'm not receiving the fullness of his love for me. He even sends chastisement into my life, but he does so because he is for me, and he loves me, and he disciplines me for the ult my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this, even on my best day, but this is my salvation, and therein I stand. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Let's pray. Oh, what a great Savior you are. What a forgiving God you are. 
what we deserved was hell and separation from you for eternity, but you gave us a life with you for eternity, clothed in your righteousness, glory forever. You are to be praised. You are to be honored. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the many gifts that you have given to us. Thank you that we have power over sin. And Lord, help us to battle hard. Help us to battle the sin that is in our heart that we might get the fullness of you. Thank you for these ladies who are here this morning and Lord, for your word that does not return void. May you penetrate our hearts with the truth and may we be changed by you. We give glory to you, O Lord, for we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.